Good morning, everyone. The title of this morning's sermon is Fate or Chance, Part 1. Fate or Chance, Part 1. I'd like to share several important points right out of the shoot here this morning. Over the next several weeks in Romans, we will be looking at passages of Scripture whereby we, as Christians, obtain fundamental, historical, and doctrinal truths that, if not understood correctly, will grossly disfigure who God is and how we are to perceive Him in our lives and in the world. How's that for a run-on sentence? I get that from my, my Puritan friends. Some people think that the subjects we are about to examine over the next several weeks aren't important. Those people would be wrong. Some people think that the subjects we are about to examine are much too hard to understand. They'd be wrong on that too. Some people think that the subjects we are about to examine are too controversial and as such should be avoided at all costs in order to dispel controversy and debate. They would be wrong also. Some people believe that the subjects we are about to examine display the very foundation of who God is, what God does, and why He does it. Those people would be right. If one does not have a correct understanding of these scriptures and this subject matter, then one will have an unacceptable misconception of God and Christianity. Now, I will prove these statements as we go along. Also, over the next few weeks, some of you are going to learn things that you've never heard before. And those things that you've never heard before are going to give way to questions in your mind that you've never had before. And both are going to occupy your mind until you get the answers you seek. And I promise you that I will give you the answers you seek, but I can't do it all in one sermon, hence the part one. So I am asking you to please be patient with me and to be patient with the Lord and his word as he reveals these things to you in his time and in his way. I'm just... The messenger. He's, of course, the head honcho. Two other things in this regard. Number one, I already know which questions are going to arise 
in your minds. And I know because I have taught and preached and or conversed with people about this subject matter and about these scripture passages literally hundreds of times over the past 30 years of of ministry. And number two, I, I already had the answers for you, but I can only give you those answers at certain times in the text and at certain places in our study. If I do anything other than that, these things will make very little sense to you. There's a a sequence in which they must be unfolded. So as I said before, please be patient. Try not to let the questions nag or alarm you too much. Some of them indeed will be alarming to you. Please just know that this is normal. And it happens to most everyone who hasn't heard these things before. And it also happens to people that have heard of these things before, but have never been taught uh, correctly, or I should say, they've been taught incorrectly concerning uh, the subjects and the truths uh, therein. My prayer, of course, is that the Lord will guide me in covering these topics in such a way that it will make them both easier for you to understand and more palatable for you to receive and accept. Okay? All right. We left off last week near the end of Romans 8. We were looking at the fact that as Christians, we are patiently awaiting the full realization of our adoption into God's kingdom and the future redemption of our bodies. That is chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. Paul says in verse 24 that it is for this hope that we were saved. Then we saw in verse 28, please look look there in, in your Bibles, we saw in verse 28 the assurance that envelops a believer, assurance that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then, in verses 29 and 30, Paul continues, and he says, quote, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All past tense, folks. Very important. So, in verses 28 through 30, we see the word predestined twice. And we see the word called three times, just in those two verses. Now, why am I pointing out the, the words called and predestined uh, in, in these verses? 
I'm doing so because I want you to begin to see a pattern in Paul's writings. And not only in his writings, but also the writings of just about everyone else who has penned Scripture. For example, please hold your place in Romans 8 and quickly turn over to Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 11 in your Bibles. I'll give you a minute to get there. Now, please remember what we've just read in Romans 8. And please remember that we are looking for a pattern in Paul's writings and in the rest of Scripture. I should say the entirety of Scripture. Okay, so here we go. Ephesians 1. 11 through 14, follow along with me as I read. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Sound familiar? It's almost identical to what we just read in Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. Verse 12 of Ephesians 1. So that we who were the firstborn to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his. So, we see three different passages of Scripture from two different epistles written by Paul, where Paul is talking about our future inheritance and fully realized redemption. And let's not forget, he also speaks twice of God's glory. And those three passages, in case you're, you're taking notes, are Romans 8, 23 through 24, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. And in these passages written by Paul we see these repeated words, the words called and the word predestined. God has called us and predestined us. The question is, to what? To what has he called us and predestined us? Well, he has predestined us and called us unto salvation or redemption for the praise of his glory. That's what Paul says. And Paul also writes in verse 28 that our calling is according to God's purpose. Another word that we will see over and over again, the word purpose or the phrase God's purpose. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, verse 29, he has called and predestined us to be justified and glorified. Verse 30, 
He has called us to an inheritance, Ephesians 1.11 and Ephesians 1.14. And again, in Ephesians 1.9 and 11, as in Romans 8, he predestines us to the purpose of his will and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All of that, all of it, is just in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. And, and we're not done just yet in comparing things in Romans 8 to Ephesians 1. Let's look at verse 3 of Ephesians 1 this time instead of verse 11. Paul says, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, Paul continues, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So again, folks, we see that God predestined us, chose us, elected us, and called us. And he did so before the foundation of the world. Nowhere in any of these verses do you see even a hint or an allusion to us having initiated anything whatsoever regarding our salvation. As a matter of fact, what you see instead is a God who is the author and finisher of everything that pertains to you and me. And he is so, he is so, by his own initiation and for his own purposes. Now, it's at this time that objections will begin to arise in people's minds. And I could name them now and deal with them now, but it's not time yet. We aren't even close to being there yet. I only mention it because I want you to know that I am aware of what some of you may be thinking. Namely, that you believe you've also had a part in your salvation and you have the scriptures to prove it. And we will get there 
soon enough. Right now, we need to continue looking at Scripture in order to get a complete picture of God's sovereignty, not only in our salvation, but in everything that takes place in the universe. Now, just to be clear, let's begin to define God's sovereignty. I have come up with a very sophisticated, complex, and almost incomprehensible definition of God's sovereignty. Are you ready? God's sovereignty means that when God decides to do stuff, he does it and no one can stop him. When God decides to do stuff, he does it and no one can stop him. That's God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty also means that he is in control of everything. And I mean everything. Let's look at some scriptures that reflect on God's sovereignty. Okay. What does God say through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 46 verses 8 through 11? This is what he says. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Job, that dude in the oldest book of the Bible, Job said to the Lord, I know that you can do all things that you... I'm sorry. Let me say that again. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's Job chapter 42, verse 2, Job speaking to God. Now, here's where some of those questions that I spoke of at the very beginning of the sermon are going to begin to arise in people's minds. God's sovereignty, folks, God's sovereignty also means that he is in control of everything, even evil, in that he allows evil and he uses it for his own purposes. Amos chapter 3 verse 6, shall the trumpet be blown in a city and the people not be afraid? Shall evil or disaster befall a city and the Lord hath not done it? Here is the Lord speaking, folks, against Israel 
through Isaiah and through Amos. And again, if we were to look at Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 7, God says, I form and I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And what about, folks, what about Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, where Peter says that the most evil act in history, the crucifixion of God's Son, was planned by God but carried out by men with evil in their hearts. And God planned it before he even created the world. Question, why? Answer, for his glory. That's why. Much more on that down the road, just wetting your beak a little bit. It could be hard to understand at times, okay, how God can be good and yet ordain or allow evil. But we nonetheless, folks, must affirm this as biblical truth because it is. And like I said before, I am going to do my best to explain to you why it is that the Lord might decide to do something like send an evil spirit to torment King Saul in 1 Samuel 16, or for ordain something as heinous as 9-11, okay? There are answers to these questions and explanations for such instances, and we will look at them later, and we will look at them very thoroughly. But again, right now, I just want you to see that God is sovereign over everything and nothing escapes him. He has never, ever been taken by surprise. The devil has never got one up on God. And God, listen, God is not the source of evil or the cause of sin. But nothing in the universe happens without the Lord's knowledge and permission. And again, we'll study this more later. Right now, I'd like you to see that if God is sovereign over evil, then logic follows that he must be sovereign over Satan. If God is sovereign over evil, he must be sovereign over the devil. If you would please turn to the book of Job in your Bibles. Now we're going to look at Job chapter 1 verses 1 through 12. Here we have Job, a guy who God himself calls blameless and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. That is verse 1. Job was so blessed that he was called the greatest of all the people in the East. We see that in verse 3. He was a devout man. 
who offered burnt offerings for all of his children, just in case they may have sinned against God. And the Bible says he did this continually, daily, every morning. And verse 6 of Job says that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. In verse 8, the writer of the book of Job says that the Lord initiated a conversation with Satan. And God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his family and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Verse 11. But stretch out your hand, the devil says. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only do not touch him. Thus the devil went out from the Lord. And most of you know the story. The devil kills all of Job's children and wipes out all of his possessions and leaves him with nothing but, but his nagging wife. So here's what I want you to see thus far. At the very beginning of this account, we see that God had put a hedge of protection around Job, his kids, and his possessions. Satan could not touch Job. Can't stress that enough. Satan could not touch Job. He cannot touch you unless God gives him permission. Can you imagine how much the devil wanted to destroy this upright and blessed man who feared the Lord? But he, he couldn't. Because as I said, God is sovereign over Satan. He wouldn't allow it. And we see here by the devil's own admission that he could not overstep that hedge of protection and touch Job unless God gave the go-ahead. And again, I would also like you to see that it was God who initiated this conversation regarding Job. The devil didn't even bring it up. He didn't bring the subject up because he knew that the Lord would not allow his hand to touch Job or anything he held dear. So, God starts this conversation with the devil. And the Lord kind of ribs the devil about Job. You know, he sticks the knife in Satan's back and he twists it and he says, <laughs> have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil. And the devil's not stupid. He basically says to the Lord, he worships you because everything in his life is perfect. Let me at him 
and I promise you, he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord gives the devil permission, but it's not that simple. Look carefully at, at the wording of verse 11. Satan says to the Lord, stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. You see here, the devil makes it clear that if God allows him to attack Job in any way, it would actually be as if God were stretching forth his own hand to touch all that Job has. In other words, the devil is glad to do the actual evil to Job, but it is God who takes the responsibility and it is God who sets the boundaries for the devil in this account and in all accounts, actually. When the Lord said to the devil, everything Job has is in your hand, only spare his life. As Satan walked away, he didn't whisper to himself, just spare his life. Only don't touch him. I'll touch him if I want to touch him. Heck, I'll kill him if I want to. The devil didn't say that because the devil can't do that. He was completely restricted. It's also important to point out here that the Lord did not do the actual evil act himself to Job. But the Lord still took full responsibility for the evil act that was done through the hand of the devil. Do you need more convincing? Look at Job chapter 2. The devil went down to George. He was looking for a soul to steal. <laughs> he was in a bind because he was... My attempt at jocularity. Okay. The devil presents himself before God again. And in verse 2, the Lord pushes the knife into the back of the devil again and turns it a little bit more. And God says, uh, yo, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. A blameless and upright man, God-fearing, one who turns from every evil thing and who still holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me to destroy him without reason. Even though you, Satan, incited me to destroy him without reason. Again, God takes full responsibility for allowing Satan to inflict Job. So, then the devil says, skin for skin. Notice in verse 5. He says, stretch out your hand. He says this to God. Stretch out your hand and touch his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Again, Satan didn't reply and say, you know, spare his life. I'll kill him if I want to. I won't spare his life. Again, Satan can only go as far as God allowed him to. Don't you think that Satan wanted very badly to kill Job. Of course he did. 
But God is in complete control here and everywhere else. He's in complete control in your life. We have to understand that. God allows evil for his own purposes. After losing all ten of his children in the collapse of his son's house, Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job one twenty one. And after being covered with boils, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? That's Job 2.10. Job saw God as the source of his misery and anguish. But the Bible quotes Job as saying this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the narrative says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Then, James, our Lord's brother, underlines God's purposeful goodness in Job's misery. He says, this is in Job chapter 5, I'm sorry, James chapter 5. James says, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Not Satan's dealings, the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Job himself include, uh, concludes in prayer in Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things, he says to the Lord, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And please keep in mind here, James says that it was the Lord's dealings that Job endured, and it was the Lord who was also full of compassion and mercy, which is seen by James as the Lord's purpose in the life of Job. We see that in verse 11. So Job speaks of the Lord's purpose, and James speaks of the Lord's purpose when it comes to Job and to everything else. The Lord's purpose for his glory remember Romans 8:28 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose so you see God had a purpose that he called Job for he had a purpose that he called the Apostle Paul for. And God has a purpose that he is calling you for. Paul tells us in Romans 8.28 that all things, even the evil things, work together for good to those of us who love God and are called according to his purpose. And keep in mind, folks, if it is a bad thing, 
or adversity in this life, you may not get the answer as to why God brought you through it until you are in heaven. Job went on to be blessed by God with twice as many children and blessings as he had before. And the narrative says that all of his brothers and sisters came and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord has brought upon him. Chapter 42, verse 11. And if Job was a human being and not an alien, he remembered the pain. He remembered the pain that came with losing all of his children at once. I mean, can you imagine? I've heard preachers over the years act as if Job was fine because God blessed him with twice as much in the end. I'm not necessarily buying that. I mean, I'm pretty sure heaven has been pretty good for Job, though. I would imagine there's a lot of jewels in Job's crown, okay? But you don't forget losing children. And you don't forget losing all of the possessions that you worked so very hard for. That never goes away. Now, I, I don't like to go over uh, 40 minutes in the pulpit because I start to lose people. We're at 37 minutes now. So stopping here, it's it it's not what I want to do, but but what we have to do. This sermon or teaching, however you would like to label it, should feel like a very brief introduction at this point. Um, part one of maybe three or four parts. I don't know. I did an outline. I don't know how long it'll take me to go through it. I'm sure God will add and subtract things in my, my heart as I go through it. I've only scratched the surface this morning is the main thing I'd like to get across to you. And again, this is where you got to trust me to pull it all together at the end. Um, I would like you, if you would, please, to read uh, Romans chapters 9 through 12 over the next couple of weeks prior prior to, I'm sorry, um, please try to uh, read Romans 9 by the week after next. Next week, Pastor Scott is going to be in the pulpit uh, for our service in um, the Pfeiffer's Yard, our outside service. And then the week after, I'll be back in the pulpit and we'll start talking about Romans 9. We're going to we're basically going to interpret Romans uh, 8, 9, and 10 in this, this sermon series that, that I'm doing. And as the weeks go by, uh, we, we're going to delve much more deeply into God's sovereignty, especially His sovereignty uh, over salvation or in salvation. And we're, we're going to look at the problem of evil. We're going to talk more about uh, God and evil. 
and we're not only going to continue to um, talk about theology and doctrine, but we're also going to become philosophers at some point in order to answer some of these questions. And, and of course, we will look at all of the objections to predestination and election and how to handle those objections. And we will examine the most common scriptures that are used by those who either say that predestination is not in the Bible or who say that those of us who are Reformed don't understand predestination and election. So we're going we're gonna to tackle all of these hard topics we're going to do it in a systematic fashion. And in the end, we're going to tie it all together after three or four sermons, three or four parts in this series. All right, let's pray.